This is Josh Schneps with your latest episode of Schneps Connects. This episode, we're talking New York City real estate, which is one of the largest economic drivers in the region, as well as an industry that touches every New Yorker that either lives and or works in the city. The pandemic has obviously hit the New York City real estate market hard. Many are struggling to pay their rent and or mortgages for their homes and businesses. A small fraction is back to the workforce in the office, and the impact is felt by all, including landlords. So I'm very excited to speak uh, with and share with all of you today's guest who lives and breathes New York City real estate, as you'll hear, James Whalen, who's president of the Real Estate Board of New York, known as REBNY, which is the city's leading real estate trade association representing residential and commercial corporations and individuals involved in the New York City real estate scene. So Jim, thanks for being with us today. I appreciate it. Josh, thanks for taking the time. I, I very much appreciate the opportunity to chat and catch up. Well, you're a born and bred New Yorker, so you know this city really well. Um, I'd love for you to just share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got into the business of real estate, and really what Redney's core mission is. Uh, sure. You know, I, I was born and raised in Queens, still reside in Queens. Uh, as I like to say, I don't think I've been out of the city more than six weeks at a time. So the New York City is in my bones. And uh, along those lines, you know, probably be fair to say that real estate really forms the bones of New York City. I mean, real estate is the largest driver of the city's economy. The easiest way to explain that is on an annual basis, more than half the tax revenue that the city collects is from real estate. So in 2019, 53% of the taxes that the city of New York collected came from real estate activity. That's enough to pay for the entire municipal workforce that the city employs day in and day out. So, you know, one can understand how the interests of the city the fate of the city are so intertwined with the interests of the real estate industry and the fate of the real estate industry. If, if the city does well, the real estate industry is going to do well. Uh, if the city's not doing well, then, you know, real estate's going to have its issues and, and, and vice versa. I mean, just the, the, the two are so intertwined. And what's Redney's role in all of this? Uh, you know, we're a trade association and we basically play two roles. Is uh, uh, One is, for lack of a better term, we're a chamber of commerce for the brokerage industry in New York City, both the commercial and the residential brokerage communities. Uh, we run events, we provide continuing education, we handle dispute resolution. And then in the case of the residential brokerage industry, we, we run the residential listing service, the RLS, which is the closest thing New York City has to an MLS like you find in other parts of the country. Then number two, is you know we're the advocacy arm for a good portion of the real estate industry, particularly the owners and many of the larger owners, both on the residential and commercial side. So we're very involved in dealing with state legislators and city legislators, as well as federal legislators on issues having to do with real estate and you know about the greater good of New York City. And how did you grow into this role? Worked in city government for a while under a Koch in an effort to modernize the Board of Elections, which, um, you know, I, I, almost 40 years later, people are still talking about. So Absolutely. It, it, it can sort of tell you what to, what 
type of a challenge that is. And then you know, I went off to law school and practiced law for a little while. But you know, really how I got my start in real estate was um, I went to go work at the 14th Street Union Square Business Improvement District Local Development Corporation back in 1995. And Union Square was a, a much different place uh, than, than you would find today. You know, it, it had its challenges. And, um, you know, I worked with some very talented and capable people. And we played a critical role in advocating for changes that, you know, resulted in the Union Square you see today, which is a, a very good thing. You know, another major stop for me a few years later was I created an organization called the Downtown Brooklyn Council, which was comprised of a number of the businesses and institutions in downtown Brooklyn. And we created a plan for the growth of downtown Brooklyn, which we advocated for to the Bloomberg administration that they took on. Uh, and it passed in 2004. Uh, and, you know, it's resulted in considerable change in downtown Brooklyn. And then from there, I went on and worked on uh, the city's plan to, you know, change the west side of Manhattan, the Hudson Yards area, advocated for rezoning that we were successful in achieving that would result in growth equivalent to the size of the city of Boston at the time, uh, the extension of the seven train over to the far west side, the expansion of the Javits Center. And then, you know, this was tied into the city's then attempt to secure the 2020, 2012 Olympics. Uh, so, you know, we did push for the Olympic Stadium, the Jet Stadium, and that's the, the, the one thing that didn't work out. Uh, but from the city's point of view, you know, I think it turned out okay, you know, many years later. And then from there, uh, you know, I went to go work in the Bloomberg administration second term focused on issues in lower Manhattan. And, you know, I think Mayor Bloomberg and, and Dan Doktoroff helped play a critical role putting the World Trade Center on a path to reconstruction that, you know, has turned out quite well. And some great work by people like Larry Silverstein and Douglas Durst. And then, you know, I just did more and more in the Bloomberg administration. So helped secure approval for the Willits Point plan and uh, the rezoning of Coney Island. You know, towards the end, I was uh, Dan Doktoroff's last chief of staff. And we, we both left government in 2008. And then, you know, I joined Redmi uh, about 10 years ago and have been playing roles when it comes to advocacy, government affairs, and then took over the top job about a little less than a year and a half ago. Well, I'll tell you, I lived in Union Square above Blue Water Grill, which was my favorite restaurant. Right. And then, you know, Great I have my place. office in, in downtown Brooklyn. So I have to say, you know, both of those communities have, have thrived and yeah, are really that was, yeah. of each borough. Yeah, that was, that was a little restaurant row you were, you were there, right? It was coffee yes. Across the street in Union Square Cafe and down the block. So, yeah, a lot of culture there. A lot of yeah. culture. You know, we first met over dinner and we were discussing, I forget if it was this year or last year, obviously pre pandemic. And, you know, I brought up to you the negative perceptions that are being formed by some in regards to real estate landlords or developers. And, you know, most recently uh, in Brooklyn, the rezoning attempts by Industry City were withdrawn. And a lot of it had to do with political headwinds from a small group and those advocating for uh, an increase in the cost of housing. Um, this came not against an Amazon, but really an owner with a strong track record in the neighborhood and took a row of buildings that were really storage facilities into thriving commercial district. It was to create thousands of jobs, particularly at a time when, you know, we need them most. My question is, do, do you feel that this negative perception is wrong? And what could be done to change or overcome this perception? I think it's very unhealthy for the city's future. You know, some of these sentiments existed pre-pandemic, in part 
at that time, I think it was due to the city's success. And by that, I mean, you know, we had reached record levels of job growth, record levels of population. You know, land is a finite thing in New York City. So, you know, a lot of these battles came down to the allocation of how such land was used. And, you know, uh, and then moreover, sort of uh, some sentiments about displacement and gentrification. The unfortunate thing and, and, and the thing that I think folks need to be mindful of and organizations like us need to redouble our efforts uh, in educating elected officials and the public is that if you want a progressive city, you need a prosperous city. Right. If we want to provide government services to help support those most in need, if we want to provide government services so that the folks who live in the five boroughs have an appropriate quality of life, then we need to put in place economic activity that's going to help pay those taxes that support the government services. It really gets back to where we started this interview, right, is real estate accounting for over 50% of the taxes that the city collects year in and year out. Uh, if there's less economic activity, the amount of taxes that the government collects is going to shrink and make it less able to provide services. And, you know, we made this point last week when we issued our most recent uh, edition of the investment sales report, which is a report that tracks real estate transactions in the city. And often these real estate transactions are taxed. So let's say a transfer tax or a mortgage tax. They're taxed, generating tax revenue for the city and state, again, to sort of pay services. And the report we issued last week found that one, due to overall economic conditions, most particularly driven by the pandemic, is when you compare this year to last year, the city and state have collected a billion dollars, $1.4 billion less than they collected last year from real estate transactions. So what does that mean at the end of the day? It's going to make it more difficult for the city and state to provide the services needed by the residents of the city of New York. And part of it, I think, also comes down to just, you know, constructively working together where it's not a no to everything, but it's really uh, adapting plans that meet the community needs, which is seemed to be a direction that that project was going in. Yeah, I mean, what was particularly frustrating about the industry city proposal on rezoning is the ownership there did an absolutely terrific job over a series of years in terms of community outreach. And they were able to demonstrate that. And you had a small vocal group pushing back. And, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with the political wins, right? So, for instance, the, the local assembly member just months before was defeated in a primary. And you saw that with respect to several seats in Brooklyn going back to June. You know, there's been a certain trend in terms of public discussion, in terms of media coverage about the city swinging in a very far left direction, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, is openly antagonistic to the private sector playing a role in creating jobs, creating housing, creating those economic transactions that generate the tax revenue that we've been talking about in this discussion. You know, I'm I'm not faulting elected officials, but they're mindful of their next re-election. And, you know, given the way some of these elections have played out lately, I I think that's been on their mind. It's, you know, it's easily summarized by the phrase that elections matter. Uh, And it was why important for folks to vote, for folks to be informed. But we really need elected officials to be thinking long term about some of the decisions they're making. You know, I think industry industry cities a, a clear case in point that it was a real missed opportunity for the long term interests of the city. 
So, you know, I want to talk about the impact on, you know, small business as well as landlords, because I think there's also the perception that all developers and landlords are these huge, you know, conglomerates, like you had mentioned, Durst, one of the prolific um, building owners in New York City. But th there's plenty of smaller landlords out there and even, you know, large landlords, but they hold big mortgages. Maybe they bought properties at the height of um, the real estate market. And I think, you know, the news has covered, you know, the, the impact on the tenants and perhaps rightly so, because if you can afford to own real estate, perhaps you're better off. But I assume that landlords are still struggling and many, if not a majority of landlords, um, are not that big type. So I'm just curious if you can give some clarity on how landlords are faring and really how small landlords make up the overall industry in New York City. I mean, yeah, we're dealing with the crisis of historic proportion. And, you know, what what I think some folks lose sight of, but I think that I think the media has been very good about covering this increasingly is that we're all in this together. So it's understandable. Tenants really, both residential and commercial, are having a really tough time. But, it, you know, Josh, as you brought up, owners, both small and big, are having a tough time, too. And, you know, we're all in this together. So if folks can't make rent payments, then owners are in a position where they can't make mortgage payments and they can't make property tax payments. And then we start to run into problems with the banks being able to meet their obligation, or as we've been discussing during this interview, government being able to collect the taxes to provide basic services to city residents. So, I mean, this is really where the federal government needs to step in. And, you know, our members have been active uh, in advocating to policymakers in D.C. about the need for action in this respect. So, you know, number one, we need direct aid to the city, state, MTA and Port Authority. The federal government's going to have to play that role of providing bridge funding to, to get those institutions through this crisis. Number two, they need to step in and start providing rental subsidies, both on the residential side and the commercial side. It'll not only provide the lubricant that I was just referring to in terms of tenants being able to pay their rent and property owners being able to pay their taxes and mortgages and banks being able to fulfill their obligations, but the rent subsidies are going to help keep these businesses afloat, you know, just like the PPP did earlier this year, keep people employed. You know, that, that's important for a variety of reasons. Again, we're going to need government to be stepping in and playing a role like it did earlier this year about providing expanded unemployment insurance. You know, I think when we reflect back, that, that was a very successful initiative that Congress put in place earlier this year. And that really needs to be continued to get us through this crisis. And then the last thing I touch upon was small businesses that they need that PPP-like program to continue for all the reasons I just cited in terms of keeping people employed, in terms of providing services to their customers, in terms of meeting their obligations to owners and others. I'm not the first to bring this up. I'm not the last. Hopefully, with the changes that are occurring in Washington, we're going to see activity on this front really soon, but it's critically important. You know, you talked a little bit about your background, and, and I'm sure you've been through different cycles of ups and downs in uh, in the real estate industry. Um, obviously, this is unique to, to any other. What, what have you learned that you can share with uh, our listeners during those down cycles and how you come out of them? I do genuinely believe in the greatness of New York City, and it's been through challenges and many challenges before, including 
pandemics and we've always bounced back stronger. I remember going back to 9-11, you know, I was doing the rezoning of downtown Brooklyn. And, you know, after 9-11, folks were doomsayers about the fate of lower Manhattan moving forward. They were doomsayers about the commercial market in New York City, that companies would disperse their employees throughout the country and throughout the world. And the fact is, nearly 20 years later, uh, New York City never really had a stronger commercial market than it did post 9-11. It was an exceptionally strong commercial market. And a lot of that had to do with decision-making by our government officials. That's what's going to be really critical moving forward because elected officials on a federal, state, and city level make certain decisions moving forward. It's going to determine whether or not the city's recovery is three to five years or 15 to 20 years. I've just seen that uh, as a lifelong New Yorker is the recovery recovery from 9-11, a much quicker turnaround than the challenges we faced during the 1970s, which really took a decade, two decades to really get ourselves through, you know, sort of a critical thing moving forward. And it does tie back to industry city. You know, we're in a situation, for instance, where we have unemployment approaching Great Depression levels. Mm. So it's going to be really incumbent upon policymakers to be thinking of decisions they make that will get people back to work, get economic activity going, because with that economic activity, it's going to throw off that tax revenue that's going to help government provide services and really help provide for a strong comeback by New York City. You know, two other things that seem to be different this time around, amongst other things, are Obviously, the pandemic has hurt uh, the retail side, just, you know, people that own boutiques or small business that are on um, the the main thoroughfares throughout the city is that not only are they dealing with COVID, but they're really competing, almost all of them, against uh, digital businesses like Amazon, as well as the fact that people are getting used to working from home. and, And the mindset is perhaps businesses will you know, not need as much office space. You know, with those two thoughts in mind, how do you see the long-term outlook in terms of retail and and office? For the reasons you cited, plus some additional ones, retail was feeling a lot of pressure pre-pandemic. The online economy uh, was really putting pressure on, you know, some segments of the retail market. The, the other thing that's not often discussed enough is if you go and look, there was an exponential growth in property taxes paid to the city by the retail sector, which was very hurtful. And then if you look in terms of the amount of retail space that was created in New York City, let's say over the last 15 years, it it was considerable and probably more than uh, the demand required, which was not the thinking 20 years ago. So in terms of a path forward, we're going to have to get a lot more creative in terms of how we think about using ground floor space. Number two is there's a lot of great entrepreneurs who you know, start small businesses who have now been sidelined because of this pandemic. And, you know, as we start to work our way through the pandemic, it's going to be really important that the private sector and government work together to try to figure out ways to get those entrepreneurs to come back and create the next version of their new business. And it's really going to, you know, provide sort of a, a more exciting street life that we're used to in New York City. You know, on the other hand, you touched upon a key component that I, I think you're going to see as a a fundamental change in the city moving forward that you had alluded to sort of, you know, the office environment. Mm. And, you know, that is probably going to fundamentally change. And one idea we've raised is looking at the idea of converting former hotel space, former office space to residential space, right? And and in a sense, this is not a new idea. If you go back Mm -hmm. to the mid 90s, 
you know, lower Manhattan was going through a pretty painful transition as what was historically a commercial district. And, you know, at the time, a tax incentive was put in place to encourage the conversion of commercial space to residential space. It proved very successful. It's one of the reasons why Lower Manhattan is often cited as really one of the up and coming neighborhoods over the last 25 years. It's, it's really reached a terrific balance of both commercial and residential. And the reason I bring this up is it helps the retail, right? Because instead of an environment that operates from seven in the morning to five at night, you now have an environment that's operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It really sort of helps the retail community. You know, so one should really be looking to promote that in other parts of New York City. And the one thing about New York City is just its complexity, right? You know, I'm out in Burroughs, Queens, and, you know, the retail's it's done okay, like throughout the pandemic. It's you know, it's a it's a retail oriented towards neighborhood services. Uh, but when I'm in the office in Midtown Manhattan, it's a much different picture. And I think that sort of illustrates why we need to sort of shift in many more parts of the city to this 24/7 environment because I, I think it's going to be a great benefit to retail and great benefit to the city as a whole. You know, one thing I'd love to ask you to see if you've been getting feedback from landlords on some of the big kind of retail tenants that chose to barricade their entries, um, particularly in Manhattan and downtown Brooklyn, right uh, as the uh, presidential election was coming. And I personally thought it was not uh, something that uh, made sense because it sent a bad message to small businesses that probably couldn't afford to even put up barriers. I mean, did you have any feedback from, from landlords that had tenants doing that? Yeah, it's just the last few months and, and, and the public demonstrations, and it's it's not so much the public demonstrations, because everybody has a right to demonstrate and demonstrate peacefully, and one shouldn't begrudge that. But I mean, let's be frank, we had some tough nights in New York City this past summer in t- terms of violence and looting. I think that was foremost in the, the minds of a number of property owners. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's a practice we'd like not to see continued in the future. And it's just going to require a much stronger working relationship between City Hall, NYPD, and the private sector moving forward so that we can repeat instances of, you know, the looting and vandalism that we saw over the summer. Well, Jim, I appreciate you being with us today. And it's good to hear your positive long-term outlook on on New York City and, and the world of real estate. So thank you so much. Josh, thanks for taking the time. Great to see you. I look forward to uh, you know getting together in Astoria for dinner sometime soon. Hopefully sooner than later. You got Thank it. Thank you so much. Take care. Make sure to check out a new episode of Schneps Connects every week, wherever you get your podcast. Stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com. <laughs>